And now on RT Radio 1, Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On this edition of the programme, Architecture of Ireland, 1600 to 2000. As part of an occasional series, we take a look at another volume of the landmark series Art and Architecture of Ireland. Volume 4, Architecture of Ireland 1600 to 2000, is edited by Rolf Lober, Hugh Campbell, Livia Hurley, John Montague and Ellen Rowley and published by Yale University Press for the Royal Irish Academy and the Paul Mellon Centre. In studio, I spoke with three of its editors, but first, by way of example of the breadth of material the volume contains, Arts Tonight met Barry O'Reilly, who reminded us of what can be read from the mark we leave on the Irish landscape. We're very close to Horse and Jockey in uh, North Tipperary. And the sound in the background is traffic on the Dublin-Cork motorway. We're standing on a little laneway cut off by the motorway. And on it is a a series of little farm courtyards, very typical of the region. And you have a dwelling house with a number of outbuildings to accommodate stock, storage and so on, farm machinery. And these yards also have nice little gardens in the front, hedgerows, a type of settlement the geographers would call uh, the settlement hierarchy. So if you think of cities, towns, villages, crossroads, places where you might have a shop, a pub or a school, well then these places are a little bit lower down again. They're, they're usually very well maintained and accredited to people who, who own them. The likely origin of a lot of these little settlements uh, would lie with a single farming family. And then as the, the children are born, the children grow up and they get married, other people marry in and so on, they would establish themselves in their own house, very close by usually. And then eventually you will get this family settlement. Now over time you will get some of these uh, places being sold on or passed out of the family or whatever, and you might get other surnames coming in. But often these places have names which reflect family names. Aylwardstown, Johnstown and so on and these would reflect the original family that started off these places the dwelling houses will always have been modified over time extended maybe demolished a new house built some of the houses here are clearly late 19th century in form and features but there are also buildings in some of the yards which were clearly dwelling houses and the overall setup is what we would call vernacular or traditional. In the architectural sense, vernacular would relate to people who are building their own houses and outbuildings for themselves rather than contracting in the work to be done by somebody else. And this would always have been done within a tradition and a handed down tradition. And again, this is a universal thing right, right across the world. This house here, which is probably a little bit unusual for a lot of these settlements, it's sort of slightly grander house. It's got three windows across the first floor and in the ground you have what they call canted bay windows. So these windows are projected out and there's also a little porch and the whole thing is contained within a veranda. The up-down sash windows survive in this house, which is, which is always great to see. Central chimneys and a hipped roof. It's likely to have succeeded perhaps a one-storey house or it may well have been built 
as a two-storey house but then added to and sort of ornamented and so on over time. There's also quite nice gates with it which would have been forged by the local blacksmith and there's a little bit of thought, a little bit of ornament and that's one of the great pleasures of the Irish countryside is to see the craft of the blacksmith and indeed the craft of the mason. But the usual thing with these farmsteads, and in fact farmsteads in general, is that the relationship of the house to the public road and the relationship of the house to the farmyard is always very interesting. In a lot of cases, the house will face into the farmyard, in fact, and uh, the farmyard is part and parcel of uh, the family's life, which of course it is. But in many cases, late 19th century and into the 20th century, there was a tendency to face the dwelling house away from the yard, perhaps it was back to the yard, or facing the public road. And that shows a different way of of looking at the farm activities, almost divorcing what goes on in the house from what goes on in the yard. So this is a feature of these settlements. One of the characteristics of vernacular farm buildings is that they tend not to tell you by looking at them what actually goes on inside except if you get these narrow slit windows in walls that will generally tell you that there's maybe it's a buyer so your average Irish vernacular farmyard has very simple modest buildings low slate or corrugated roofs rendered walls square headed openings with timber lintels but it's it's more their combination their layout the relationship of yards to each other in a a little settlement like this which gives you great sense of place really there's a visual experience looming up behind the outbuildings there's one of these barns standard Dutch barn or iron barns are such a perennial feature of the Irish landscape the first ones arrived on the scene probably in the 1860s so it's 150 years which means they have that they have some claim to being part of the architectural heritage and farming heritage of the country. Uh, they're often red in colour. The idea of corrugated goes back really into the 1820s in the London docks when an engineer called Palmer was looking to find a way of roofing the very wide spaces in warehouses. He hit on the idea of crinkling steel material. It was sheet steel before that. And this made it very strong. I suppose originally roofing with steel goes back into the 18th century in Russia and France as well, as well as England. The material uh, would not have been really produced here uh, until a very much later stage down with uh, Irish steel in Hobolan. It would have been imported from the black country in England around Birmingham and so on. The various contractors who put up these barns are fairly well known to people. Kennans and Sons of Fishamble Street. They were, they operated out of the old music hall where Handel's Messiah was first performed in 1742. Kelly's of Portleash is massively uh, represented around the country. Hill and Smith, Smith and Person and so on. And you can date the barns according to whose plaque is on it. Even if the plaque is missing, you could nearly guess who put it up because of the style of the steelwork within the barns. I've looked at colour actually in corrugated buildings generally, not just hay barns, but buildings like churches, hospital buildings, military buildings, school buildings, houses, which are completely made of corrugated as well. You will tend to get a, a greater variety of colours with houses, churches and so on. But the barns, the red oxide, which was a paint that was widely available through the 20th century, was the colour that was uh, very much uh, recommended. The oxide of iron was seen to be the best anti rusting agent and it also provided a lovely colour so well painted barn is always a joy to behold now the barns here look like they're in very good shape indeed and well painted the different companies had catalogues of all the different elements and you could get a figure a quote for a particular type of building it's all 
very much flat pack uh, approach long before Ikea and so on but um, very rewarding to look at places like this and get a sense of how they were added to over time and the amount of living that's gone on in them the farmhouses the yards and so on associated with ordinary farming people just up the road a bit a couple of miles there's Mykarki Castle a medieval tower house and it's barn or farmyard around it and then the other just immediately south of the motorway there's in fact a townland called Gralla and it has three settlements one is a tower house and the medieval settlement that was associated with that and then further along the road there's Gralla Moor and Gralla Beg they're rather similar to the settlement we're standing in today I would have passed these many times over the years but when I developed a very particular interest in vernacular settlements for a doctorate I recently completed I realised that you don't have to go too far to find things which are visually stimulating because you're, you're really reading the landscape in terms of how people have approached things how they've approached accommodating their own activities in reality people respond rather similarly whether it's the medieval period, the 19th century or indeed the 21st century Barry O'Reilly there in County Tipperary, a contributor to Architecture of Ireland, 1600 to 2000. Three of the editors of that volume, Hugh Campbell, Livia Hurley and Ellen Rowley, joined me in studio recently. And I began by asking Ellen Rowley, what were the aims and intentions of the volume at the start of the project? And did they evolve and change over time? It's always to sit in a matrix of five volumes. But initially it was to follow the Strickland form of dictionary A to Z, where it was architecture and architects. And so the biography of the architect was to be as important as as the buildings. Um, But for all of us involved from the outset, we're more interested in the fact that buildings are our mark on on the earth and and, 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 on, on the country. And also because there's this really pioneering work on architectural biography coming out of the Irish Architectural Archive, the Dictionary of Irish Architects by Anne Martha Rowan and others. So it didn't really make sense for us to, to shape it according to biography. So we very quickly removed ourselves from that format. Um, and we had the support of these great advisors who, we, who, who helped us kind of say, listen, volume four is going to break away from that. And as a result, then, how do we tell the story? Well, we were breaking away from one traditional form of the A to Z. So another form that we decided to embrace, and I suppose Hugh will talk about that more, is a way into buildings through building type. I mean, it's also, I suppose, important to say that the the team built over the course of about a year as well. It was Rolf Lober was the originator of the volume and then I came on board and then Ellen and Livia and John Montague joined the team. So five editors all Indeed, and that in itself actually probably was was somewhat different than most of the other volumes and it meant it always felt like something collective. And then beyond that, of course, we were determined to draw in a wide range of voices from as many contributors as we could. So we always saw it as something assembled. But it well, also, I, I love yeah. something that's said in the introduction where you talk about mm. how the order is like memory uh, and the built environment. Indeed, yeah. you know, yeah. things and sometimes odd things that's side right. by side. That's right. And, and there's that thing of that this is how you encounter the built environment, of course. There would be many people who would want to say that you do need a sort of an element of chronology because you need to understand how something happens and that impacts what happens after that and impacts what happens after that. So within the individual entries, there is, of course, a sort of chronological structure. 
But at the same time, we did want that sense of juxtaposition and of things existing cheek by jowl with each other as well. And of course, the look of the thing is is, is terribly important. And, and Levy, you were the, the visual manager for the, the volume. I, that was must have been quite an, an undertaking. And I have to say that the result is, is as in all the volumes, uh, really beautiful. And it illuminates again, as was the, the complexity of architecture and the wonder of it. I mean, it, it, it must have been great to do that work. Yeah, it was it was great. It was great and challenging. I mean, we were all involved in the very beginning. The five of us and all of our 98 contributors um, had very clear ideas about what kind of images they wanted to accompany their essays in order to illuminate something, some argument that we were trying to make in terms of the way the building was uh, made or how it looked. We had two very, very good sources to start with. One from Ralph Lober, our co-editor, who has been collecting material on Irish architecture since the 1960s. The other source from one of our advisors, Paul Larmer, who also has a very rich archive of um, original photography and drawings. Maps, um, particularly manuscript maps, were also included. Sometimes they include vignettes of the buildings, so elevations of the buildings when they were newly built in the 18th or 19th century. And that gives then the reader an additional layer of information. And we devised a series of comparative drawing sheets where we put together examples of various building types, um, but also parts of the built environment. There are things like forts in there as well and Martello Towers. They show examples and also the evolution. Those drawings were made by a young um, architectural graduate, Connor Rochford from UCD, who drafted everything to this sort of same scale and style. There is a sort of a slightly retro feel to that, which I quite like. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the, the geography books that we had, <laughs> in the, yeah. the Folans books that we had back in the day. That formative book. <laughs> Exactly, but I think it, it's lovely the way they're divided up in the volume and I think it gives that good visual and narrative. I love the photographs as well of, of working people, people making the buildings. It, it really reminds you of, of the materiality and how construction happens. Yes, um, particularly again in, in the material chapter and many of Ellen's uh, photographs, the, the 20th century photographs, she was very clear about including people, not just sort of wandering down a street, but actually involved in that building process and I think that sort of excites people too and makes them very curious actually um, and then the histories and the stories behind that. Some of the images are a little bit like an essay on them on their own they speak for themselves. I know you, you just look and, and so many stories emerge um, I was struck by something else in the introduction that was a, a quote from E.M. Foster the aspects of the novel um, where he suggests that English novelists should be envisaged not as floating down the stream of time, but as seated together in a circular room, maybe the sort of the British Museum, reading room, all writing their novels simultaneously. And you suggest that that picture of Irish architecture, if viewed in a similar way, would be all the more rewarding. Hugh, you might elaborate a little bit on, on that thought. Um, yeah, that Foster quote I always had in my head, or it just came into my head early on in the discussions about the volume. And as I said already, that's the way also you encounter the built environment. And so we wanted to try to have that feeling of the variegated landscape available to the reader. Otherwise, the challenge of making those four centuries somehow available. I mean, our volume was, I think, had the longest 
chronology of any of the volumes. Maybe the medieval would say it had longer, but um, that's important to say. Same as sculpture. I retract that. (laughs) (laughs) Our volume had to cover 400 years uh, and a lot of material. We could probably get all the editors of all the volumes in to to dispute this point. But I I think one of the points to bring what Hugh's saying and to what Livia's saying and indeed what you admired yourself in in the photography, I suppose architectural history as a discipline is product driven. So you've got these buildings that you know kind of land like alien objects and they're stone and they're extraordinary like the building on the cover of the book which is the casino at Marino which really is an extraordinary gem of architecture 18th century folly and one thing that we wanted to do was vaguely challenge that type of architectural history and to place the everyday alongside so the ordinary as Hugh's saying so with the 20th century material in, in general, it is marked by its ordinariness and maybe the lack of scholarship around it, which gives has given it value, such as the 18th century. So really to show those Crampton workers up on the roof mm. with their flat caps is really important because then we see how the Crumlin housing estate was made. And it's not, it wasn't always in existence. This was a human endeavour and very much to do with framing the nation and how the country wanted to um, develop itself and architecture as a way of, of, of developing. Something I was thinking about, you know, E.H. Carr saying that we should always be aware of who writes the narrative of, of any history. I presume the same could be said of architectural history and maybe uh, of this book. Yeah, in in thinking about that, Livia and I were just talking about one of the big points of richness are the many voices. Mm. There is not one narrator in this book and we're very proud of that. And And that's the only way we could do it. I think as well there's very different approaches in evidence. We definitely wanted to reflect the fact that there are this variety of approaches. I think that was one of the important, always important for us. And I think it is one of the things that comes through in the finished book. I suppose the very diverse nature of our contributors, um, there are design historians, art historians, but also engineers, surveyors, geographers, geologists, as well as practising architects and conservationists. The sort of new scholars who may not have had such an opportunity to be able to publish um, so quickly. And it's a good place for them to be. And it means that the book contains voices that change across the pages. On that point, thinking about the text and the publications, the films and and all of the things that are available, the various studies, um, to you as as editors, as authors, as contributors, what ones that were particularly helpful? And I presume that some of those sources uh, would have confirmed to you that there's still a great deal of work to be done in, in, in this whole area. Well, within the 400 years, funnily enough, the two centuries that bookend, so the 1600s and the 1900s, so the 17th and 20th centuries were are the two centuries that are that have been least written about and researched. Um, with the 20th century, we have too much in terms of archive material, and it's all unexamined. Yeah. But I suppose you're getting a glimpse. For instance, we've an intro, we have a an essay on the architecture of the bog and say bungalow bliss, both by Gary Boyd, both really important overviews of key aspects of the landscape, of the built uh, environment in the landscape in the 20th century. And something I've been increasingly looking at is the the Catholic Church archives for understanding um, how the suburbs were built. Of course, the churches, the Catholic churches. Yeah, and indeed RTEs. 
archives, the mm, RIARC archive. And I think at the same time then that we were also able to build on the work. Eddie McParland has also already been mentioned. So Eddie and others are kind of an earlier mm. generation of historians Freddie focusing O'Dwyer's mostly Freddie O'Dwyer on the 19th work. century. Yeah. This work was really, really important to us and in a way it was an exemplar. And so the challenge was yeah. to try to extend that feeling of authority in terms of the amount and extent of knowledge and knowledge that had been synthesised. And when we were designing things, and then we decided, OK, it would be nice to have an entry on Martello Towers and handball alleys. These were notional things. Was the research even done yet? You know, and did, did we have time to do it? Because obviously the five of us were going to be principal authors. So what we did, and I, I think this is a, is a real excitement, maybe from an academic, nerdy point of view, but to go into certain libraries and scour the shelves for dissertations, postgraduate thesis that never see the light of day, really good, promising work dust them off take them out read them go oh this is really good contact that author and then commission a piece of writing Livia somebody else obviously who who would be very important this whole year is Morris Craig Yeah Morris Craig's book The Architecture of Ireland we probably don't have the the same tone as Morris Um, Morris was a wit and a poet a very pithy man and his his work as well with Unfers Verbeher and with William Garner not just in terms of text but also their photographic archives there were good sources um, that we could sort of plunder all of that comes really through the Irish Architectural Archive and now it's time for the baton to be moved on (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's it's good to see organisations like the Dublin Civic Trust and the Heritage Council and the Royal Institute of Architects of Ireland getting their own entries in the volume as well. Again, that's a reminder of how important their work has been. Uh, Moving on to the particular content of the book, uh, we'll take a look at a a couple of specific themes. But first, by way of example, here's Graeme Hickey, a contributor to the volume and conservation research officer with Dublin Civic Trust, considering the domestic urban architecture of the 19th century. We're in a part of Dublin that will be familiar to many people and just north of the Grand Canal, synonymous with roads and roads of different types of housing that was built in the opening decades of the 19th century. And we forget that where the vast majority of people lived, that building stock doesn't survive anymore. There are small cabins, two or three room cabins uh, lining the roads leading into the towns and and, and cities, or there were cottages built in behind the uh, larger houses. In many ways, the building stock that we're looking at today is unrepresentative of what actually existed in the 18th and, and 19th centuries and where the majority of people lived. The George Bernard Shaw house here on Sing Street is a lovely and very typical example of the type of housing that was being built um, in Dublin in the 19th century. Such an incredible shame that it's now closed, given the wonderful job that was done in restoring its interiors to a Victorian character. Plain brick house, uh, vaguely classically proportioned with tall sash windows, a very simple, modest uh, entrance door with a small fan light. Uh, There's a lovely houses right next door that still retain their original wigging, the very fine jointing on on the brickwork, the granite detailing, the wrought iron railings. Uh, Yellow brick becomes very popular as uh, brick making kicks off in the Midlands so there's new yellow brick coming into Dublin um, in the 1830s and and the 1840s. Um, Stucco arrives for the first time so render coating, kind of a a layer of icing gets applied over uh, brickwork or Roman cement uh, dressings. And then 
then by the 1850s, red brick comes back into fashion again as for the first time mechanised or factory-produced brick comes in. So then from 1850, really up until the early uh, 20th century, red brick is the predominant material that's used to build houses. The early brick that was used, pretty much all of them were made in the Merrion brick fields or Tonsilla or elsewhere in, 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 in Dublin. It's only with the mechanisation of brick that suddenly we get a, a huge influx of brick, particularly from, from the north, from, from Belfast, and also from brickworks in, in, in Britain. Understanding some of the basic features and elements of these houses, it animates your walk along a street. What enables you to date a house very precisely is the type of windows. Glass-making technology was advancing at such a pace uh, in the early 19th century. So up until that time, the only way that you could glaze a window was to use uh, smaller panes of hand-spun crown glass when a a glazier would blow a large disc of glass and then uh, cut it into the smaller panes. Hence, you ended up with the typical Georgian window. But on streets like these, for the first time, you begin to see what are known as two-over- two sash windows or one over one sash windows where there's either two panes in each sash or one large pane in the sash and that came about because of the development of of, of cylinder glass in the 1830s and the 1840s the excise on glass was abolished in Ireland which was levied on weight of glass in 1845 and then in turn as you move into the 50s and the 1860s you begin to see um, two over two windows relegated to the top floor and you get grand one over one on the ground floor and then Finally, the ultimate, by 1870 or thereabouts, you get one over one across the board in all of the uh, windows at the front of a house. So by the mid-19th century, you begin to see the developer make their houses fashionable, just like they do today in modern-day housing developments. So bay windows are put on for the first time. Suddenly you had a grand projection at the end of your room. It was usually quite nicely panelled inside. You, your three sash windows looking in all uh, directions. Uh, you could put arrangements of plants or ornaments. In, in the bay window for the first time most houses even if there wasn't need for stables they would still have a muse lane in order to accommodate the cesspits um, that are located at the bottom of the garden where chamber pots would be decanted into on a, on a morning basis uh, every few months these would be opened up uh, and they would be decanted by what were called uh, night soil men so most of these streets uh, still retain very small laneways uh, to the back uh, which allowed access uh, for exactly the, the, that purpose so the whole uh, network of back lanes and streets are fascinating in their own right. A lot of them retain their beautiful uh, Dublin calp or limestone walls or or granite walls as as you go further into South Dublin. Of course, in the 19th century, uh, the single source of heat in any house would have been the the hearth, which meant that chimneys were absolutely essential and the whole industry that went with managing uh, heat was critical. And in the Georgian period, chimneys tended not to feature as an architectural element. They were hidden from view behind the parapet wall to give it a a neater uh, classical appearance. For the first time, we begin to see that change in the 19th century as more picturesque notions uh, come in. So the chimney is suddenly a decorative feature on the skyline. By the 1850s, when the red brick really comes in and polychromatic brick, where yellow brick and red brick are, are used in tandem, chimneys suddenly become much more elaborate and on the smaller streets like Arnott Street or Carlisle Street you see just uh, little decorative flourishes, cornice on your chimney dash of colour with yellow brick interspersed and the chimneys become much more important uh, as architectural elements puncturing the, the roof line as you move down 
And there you heard Graeme Hickey, Conservation Research Officer with Dublin Civic Trust, considering the domestic urban architecture of the 19th century and reminding us of how much can be noted by simply looking at the buildings around us. Ellen, you've been writing a, an architectural account of, of public housing in 20th century Dublin. Very different landscape to what Graeme was talking about there. But again, an extraordinary window into Irish life, social life, cultural life. Although listening to Graham there, we walk through those streets and we cycle or get the bus or whatever. And to have someone like Graham unpack the elements like that, and he mentions it animates your journey down a street to be able to understand maybe more about those things. So that's that's really exciting. Unfortunately, our book is so large, you can't really walk around the streets with it. You have a, <laughs> you'll have a sore back. But there's so much about those buildings that Graham's talking about. They're so ubiquitous that we wander past and we, we all love love hate. Oh, look, they're in, they're in that lane I know there or whatever. It's, it's great to have your place uh, represented to you. In a way, with the 20th century housing, it's it's really a project of that because they are so ordinary and every day. And the, well, I grew up in the suburbs in the 1970s. For, for Livia, it, it, it was forts and Kinsale. For me, it was, you know, shopping centres in South County Dublin or whatever. I'm very interested in scratching beneath the surface and understanding why these came about and how they came about. So the incentive of, of government, of local government, and then the technology behind them. And that perhaps these buildings, say, our housing estates, say, while they're so everyday and ordinary, they actually sit in a in an international discourse and that there are, our architects are being sent over and our engineers, they're looking at what's going on elsewhere, bringing those ideas back. Livia, one of the, of the particular elements in the book uh, is that of, of the urban biographies, uh, including Cork, Armand, Drogheda. Uh, and there's a fine painting by Gabrielle Ricciardelli, a view from Drogheda from Ballsgrove, 1750 to 55. What did you want to capture in your picture of Drogheda. First of all, just to comment on using urban views, 18th century urban views, we used them for Cork, Kilkenny and Dublin and Derry in particular. They're great for giving the reader an idea of how a town or a city looked when it was newly built and looks very different today. And Riccardelli was a very detailed painter, despite the fact that he shows this view or paints this view from Ballsgrove. And from that distance, he's really captured, um, well, first of all, the very spectacular setting of Drogheda um, set up high on either side of the Boyne and then the view to the port um, out to the Irish Sea. And the bridge, it's a beautiful painting. It's a very, very fine painting. And I think if you zoomed in, um, to use a sort of a more modern term, that you would actually see a huge amount of architectural detail on those buildings. What we can see from Ballsgrove are the new brick warehouses on, on the Quayside and then moving up we can see um, the sort of stony grey older elements um, of Drogheda, the Barbican at St Lawrence's Gate and the Abbey of St Mary. On the southern side the grey walls of Millmont which was at that point uh, Richmond Barracks. The sort of reconstructed uh, streetscapes of uh, West Street and Lawrence Street and then the spire of the new Palladian Church of St Peter's. So it's a very, very detailed architectural uh, setting. The piece I wrote on Drogheda, I also chose Joseph Ravel's great map of the town, which has 
little vignettes giving you the elevations of the new public buildings and some of the domestic architecture. And I suppose what's great about Drogheda still today is that much of that historical fabric that's portrayed in the painting and in the, on the map still survives, including the early 17th and late uh, 17th century townhouses, which now have been sort of wrapped in a different style, so they're not so recognisable. And of course, then the whole backdrop with MacNeil's iron viaduct from 1855. And then we have some really interesting 20th century buildings too that people pass by and don't really recognise. The Ralph Burns big shiny white uh, technical school and of course Ronnie Tallon's very elegant uh, glazed red brick post office on the middle of uh, West Street. The the urban biographies were, there were a lot of fun to put together. Visually it was a little bit challenging and that's why we chose those paintings of Again, Kilkenny as well and Henry Brokus's painting of Derry is quite exceptional because it really shows you the other side of that city. And the, the spires hue of, of Drogheda in that painting reminds us of, of ecclesiastical architecture and the history mm. of that, which gets a chapter of its own. Uh, and I suppose in a way you could almost say that, that, that the history of church architecture is almost an example of democracy at work in that it was so many people in the period covered by the book would have been church goers um, of, of one faith or another. The simple fact would be that for many people, probably the majority of people, the only purpose built piece of architecture, so to speak, that they would have interacted with regularly would be the church and its associated buildings. And then the church would have been one of the major patrons of architecture right throughout the period of, uh, that the volume covers. What's very, very interesting is how you can chart the sort of ebb and flow and rise and fall of the various different faiths and religions uh, across the trajectory of the volume. So if you look, for instance, at ecclesiastical architecture in the 19th century, that's a sort of tale of, on the one hand, increasing Catholic dominance, and on the other hand, a sort of Protestant rearguard action, so that you see post-Catholic emancipation, this extraordinary flowering of Catholic church architecture from a position where during the penal laws those churches have been buried in the backlands, they've been repurposed industrial buildings, they've been in the back of houses, worship has been enduring, but it's only then post-emancipation and quite quickly that you start to get these purpose-built churches. The first phase of them, if you think of something like Adam and Eve's church uh, off the Quays in Dublin, still hidden in the middle of blocks. So you still have the residue of that. The penal laws forbid a church to have a frontage onto the street. But gradually the churches are getting larger and more elaborate. And then you move into a sort of second phase. Again, I'm thinking in Dublin where the um, Archbishop at the time, Archbishop Daniel Murray, talks about the churches like St. Paul's and Aaron Key as being like watchtowers for the kingdom of God. So they're starting to claim the skyline of the city for Catholicism. And then you get a further phase, which we'd associate with what's called the devotional revolution, the era of Cardinal Colin, where all of these rituals are brought back in, the rituals of the rosary, vespers, um, sodalities, and they are again reflected in an architecture that becomes even more grandiloquent, uh, elaborate, whether it's a classical language or whether it's something like an exercise in French Gothic, like St. Augustine and John's on Thomas Street is the one I always think of, which towers over its surroundings. And interestingly, coming full circle in a way, because they're often, uh, these churches are built on what were originally monastic sites. So they're sort of rediscovering an earlier ecclesiastical landscape and claiming it for Catholicism. And so then again, in turn, those, those layers and layers. And exactly, because at the same time, just down the road, of course, you have St. Patrick's Cathedral and Christchurch Cathedral being restored. 
through the patronage of Street and Guinness, consciously, I think, as a sort of riposte to what they see emerging around them, the spires uh, of an increasingly dominant Catholic middle class. Yeah, and just to think think further on, on what, what Hugh was saying, something that makes an appearance in the book would be the world of convent seminaries and, and that a hugely important part of Catholic social infrastructure. You know, healing, charity, all of those buildings are coming out of the Catholic Church at the end of the 19th century also. You, to move on to what's often considered to be, I suppose, another great crowd drawer, sports and, and recreation, architecture, recreation and public resort having its own chapter and you introduce it. What does that form of architecture tell us about, I suppose, the democratisation of Irish society as well as exclusivenesses within it? Well, I suppose this is another area where that's where you often encounter architecture for the first time is, you know, beyond the domestic sphere. You're going to the cinema or you're going to a sporting event and that's where you're kind of meeting a purpose-built larger structure for the first time, often quite ambitious in its own way. There's things about sport that remain constant, you know, the rules, the size of the pitch and so on and so forth. But what tends to happen is that you get an architecture around it that evolves over time. You see that happening, certainly with the architecture associated with the GAA. I suppose there is a trajectory that leads you directly from something as humble and at one point ubiquitous as the handball alley, uh, all the way up to Croke Park the great kind of temple of the GAA. And each of them are interesting in their own way and each of them are absolutely central to the social fabric of the nation. And then on the other hand, of course, you have, I suppose, the individual tribes, the sort of yacht clubs and the racetracks. There's something quite special about it because it's made with a, with a kind of enthusiasm, if you like. Sometimes when you're doing things typologically, you're fixated on function the function of a house, the function of a factory, the function of a church, of a school. But places of public resort somehow move beyond function to things more intangible, pleasure, for instance, which is very important, obviously, (laughs) and which architecture plays a part in for people as well. One of the great pleasures, as we mentioned earlier, of this volume is being able to identify the enthusiasts that we do not lose lose sight of of, of those things. John Montague encountered a very fascinating site of of, of Irish lights, non-land lighthouses, some German site. They were often actually really beautiful structures, but it's great to be able to give a little place to those unnoticed things in the landscape or those things that are in danger of slipping out of view. Or like our, our local handball alley there, there also functioned as a great courting spot. <laughs> <laughs> this, this should be noted as well in terms of the social history of Ireland. And looping back to this thing about... <laughs> it's interesting that architects you'll find are often way more enthusiastic about those anonymous of the vernacular rather than the intended pieces of architecture. I don't know any architect who doesn't love certain handball alleys. The one in Athen Rye, which where the, you've got the sort of seating across the road and played against the back wall of a ruined church. You know, those kind of settings, notionally free of organisation where people gather and it has a a fixed form that people recognise. I think the medieval churches, at least the ones from certain period, they were yeah. the exact proportion of humble alleys. So Clare, they were used or reused. It's an interesting sort of crossover. That's a terrific <laughs> from, crossover. <laughs> from yeah. Ecclesiastic. Um, <laughs> You'd mentioned uh, John Montague as one of the other editors. He talks about theatres before the 20th century. And uh, Ellen, you then mm-hmm. come to the architecture of cinema and theatre in the 20th century. With, with cinemas, really, I was elaborating on the scholarship of Jane O'Halloran who was writing about cinemas looking then at say the cinemas of the suburbs and Ballyfermot, Whitehall and Cabra and how all of those cinemas from the early 1950s they were inserted into a terrace in a suburb and they like Hussein became aside from the church and the school became the main public building in in a given um, suburban neighbourhood and then interestingly in the 70s they were appropriated into bingo halls by Gwail Lynn and so they're 
their footprint wasn't changed at all because they still worked. There's a hall format and then you've got a foyer. So they're kind of like an antechamber you move through. So these are really intact. But around regional Ireland, you have, like with the hospitals, modernism, jazz hands, modernism coming to, to the country in the 1930s. Um, one thing that we were looking at were these new art centres that, that begin to appear at the end of mm. the 20th century. Hugh and I were very interested in the in and actually Livia wrote about civic offices and that that important programme that starts really in the nineteen nineties um, and becomes one of the most interesting national programmes that we we haven't really seen it since the hospital building programme yes. of the nineteen thirties. Yeah. Livia, particular interest of yours again explored in the book is at breweries and, and mills uh, as we all think of Guinnesses, but it, it's only part of a much bigger story. Sure. Our industrial buildings in Ireland, I suppose the economic boom of the mid-18th century produced some of the greats within that architecture. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Slane Mill in County Meath, which was the largest flour mill in Europe for a few decades until superseded by Richard Arkwright's uh, spinning mills in Britain. And it's not in use as a mill anymore, but it still stands on the Boyne. Um, It looks like a classical house, but it hides a very highly functional industrial building. And it forms part of the very dilapidated Arcadian landscape of the Boyne Navigation, which we also talk about. Guinness was and still is a very, very large site. It's something like 64 acres. So it's like a city in itself. We, we try to capture the essence of the, these sort of massive cavernous spaces, the underground railways, sky-high bridges, the cobbled streets of, of this other city. Um, and at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, Guinness was the site of the largest free standing malt house, uh, Robert Street Malt House, um, which has an exquisite cathedral crypt-like space um, for holding the malt bins. And then on the other side of the street, we have, of course, the Market Street Storehouse, which was the first steel-framed multi-storey building on these islands predating the Ritz. So they were very innovative um, and therefore their specificity has to be, I suppose, celebrated as well. And in Cork then, obviously, as well, you'd be mentioned Crawford and Ladies Well. If you look at a plan or a map of Cork between the end of the 18th century and the middle of the 19th century, it's remarkable to see how industrialised it was. Um, and it was dotted with all the associated industries, so the foundries and the, the silos and all of those other structures that make up that very heavy industrial landscape, probably on par with Belfast, given it's... Well, Belfast was, again, the largest linen producer in the world at the end of the 19th century that spawned a marriage between a warehouse and a department store. And John Montague and I have written about that in the warehouse entry. Those buildings are being reused today. They're still very much part of that residue of our mini industrial boom, if you if you wanted to call it that. Looking uh, to material and materiality in architecture, many materials from brick to timber, stone to concrete, uh, are referenced throughout the book. Patricia McCarthy, a contributor to the book, visited Castletown House in County Kildare, where no shortcuts were taken on the materials used in its construction and fitting out. We have just stepped inside the main door of Castletown House, built by William Connolly. 
starting in about 1719, he started to think about this. So just to, to remark on the actual approach to the house, you have a long flight of steps, which is hugely impressive. So anybody coming to visit at Castletown House has to mount all of these steps, rain or not, to get into the house. In 1722, the house was coming along, and Sir John Percival wrote to a friend of his to say that let's hope when this house is being built Irish materials are going to be used. So we want Irish masons, we want Irish woods to be used, Irish marbles to be used. And he also said this house is going to be the finest that Ireland ever saw. So the expectation was great. Um, William Connolly himself was extremely wealthy. He was the son of a publican from Ballyshannon. And he had made a huge amount of money from forfeitures, land forfeitures, from the Williamite War. So he had all of this money available to build a really substantial house. He acquired a plan from Alessandro Galilei, who was an Italian architect. So the house is basically, we think, the design or the exterior is designed by Galilei. Also, Edward Lovett Pierce, the great Irish architect, is involved in the building and in the design of it. So when you walk into the hall, it's really Edward Lovett Pierce's space. So you have the central block and then you have two curved colonnades leading down to pavilions at one each end of the colonnades. And it's kind of embracing when you walk in. You have the steps in the centre and then up the steps and into the hall where we are now standing, which is an absolutely wonderful space filled with light. Painted white, which is probably what it was painted originally. Absolutely built to impress. It's three bays wide. It has, we're standing at with our backs to the hall door, and it has a gallery carried on a screen of ionic columns with the deep carved entablature supported by these and by half columns. Wonderful square tapered columns. You have baskets of flowers. They're actually carved from wood. Uh, the hall itself is apparently an exact cube. The fireplace is Kilkenny marble, so Irish timbers, Irish stone, everything like that was used in the construction. But we also have the wonderful floor, which is a checkered black and white limestone and black marble, which gives it a very palatial look. But also, it helps us to move into the next space, which is the staircase hall. And what unites the two spaces is the fact that the flooring flows from the main hall into this second or the staircase hall. It wasn't until Lady Louisa Connolly arrived in about 1759. She was looking at what sort of staircase she could put in here and decided on this, which is just the most elegant and actually simple staircase of Portland stone, a cantilevered staircase, and you've also moved into a different type of space. So you have this Rococo plasterwork on the walls and on the ceiling, executed by the La Franchini, who did such a lot of work in Ireland. And funnily enough, within the plasterwork, there are family portraits. Um, we know the dating of the staircase because it's actually marked 1760.
So we're going into the dining room now. Originally, this was two rooms. What Louisa did between 1763 and 67, she created this dining room out of two rooms. It was a major job. When the dividing wall uh, was removed, it had to be removed also through three storeys above. Fireplaces and flues had to be repositioned so that everything here in the dining room would be symmetrical, that the windows would have equal distance between them and all the rest of it. Mark Girouard has said it was always one of the best and the biggest rooms in the house. Eating and the room in which you ate was hugely important. So it was decorated accordingly. Um, This room is painted green. From my own study of of Irish houses, uh, it is the most popular colour for dining rooms. Also, it was recommended that you don't use hangings, fabrics like damask or silk or whatever, on your walls because it could retain the smell of food. So it was not a very good idea. The green walls here remind one of the fantastic job that has been done at Hetford House in County Meath, where Robert Adams' eating parlour has now been restored to the original colours of the mid and dark green that he decided on for that particular room. And then uh, you have Lions in County Kildare, the panoramic views painted on the walls by Gaspari Gabrielli, and then of course you have Carton's wonderful dining room with all of the fantastic plasterwork, which is now I think called a saloon. Patricia McCarthy there, a contributor to the book at Castletown House in County Kildare. Ellen Rowley, concrete um, is a material about which you are something of an expert, I suppose, and you write about it in this volume and reference its use in many iconic buildings. I, I'd like to become an expert and think about concrete as as a cultural thing and send the metaphoric role of concrete as uh, in kind of reconstructing after 1916. And I was given the opportunity in writing this to look at the papers of Sean de Corsi, an engineer who died before he could do anything with this brilliant material he'd amassed. People are playing with it occasionally in Ireland from the mid-18th century and it's associated by towards the end of the 19th century with buildings of the army, railway architecture, a little bit of industrial stuff as well. Cleary's department store is a really important building that uses a, a form called a Hennebeek structure. The earliest Hennebeek buildings are in Belfast, a factory in Belfast, and the, the granary in, in Waterford from 1905. So we were interested again in like how it's so, so ubiquitous, how it's so everyday. It's the stair treads, it's the pavements, it's the walls of our lives, you know, and that's not just an urban experience experience, it's rural as well. And also with the Office of Public Works, who really are quite heroic at this point in the 1920s, 1930s, they're using concrete in ways they're, they're not really that sure how it'll work in conservation schemes. So three very important conservation schemes and very much a decolonialisation project. The rebuilding of the GPO, the rebuilding of the Custom House and the rebuilding of the Forecourts. And the Forecourts Dome uses really interesting concrete technology. So there's little bits of that in the book. And another example 
exciting thing about concrete is that it can be an indigenous national material because it comes from limestone aggregates and we have all these really rich native gravels. So that's another thing I learned from Sean de Corsi. So it was an example of getting the opportunity to write an entry, to use someone else's expertise. And I now in my own research, I'm moving forward with concrete, trying to develop that research. You know. What are some of the best known buildings? There's a whole load of concrete buildings you'd never imagine they're concrete. The government buildings, that's concrete, dressed up as stone. The National Concert Hall, which was formerly UCD on Earlsford Terrace, that is a concrete building. Cleary's, as I said, is a concrete building dressed up in kind of neo-Grecian art deco, possibly less surprising. But those buildings are early 20th century when they try to look older, you know. <laughs> Probably the Berkeley Library in Trinity is the most exciting and successful example of concrete as an art form concrete is sculptural Francis Pym's extension to the Ulster Museum the college in Portadown we're the American Embassy in, in the, the American Embassy now, it highlights just how primitive our industry was because it's designed like the Berkeley by an American, John Johansson, and actually it can't be built according to his prescription because we don't have a precast industry at the time. So all of the parts for the American Embassy are imported from Rotterdam and those ribs in the American Embassy are supposed to look like the stitches of an Aaron jumper. <laughs> Good concept. <laughs> it was a bit of a challenge to it. <laughs> achieve it in, in concrete. Um, I wonder, if, could I ask each of you what you hope it will achieve, Livia, in, in terms of, um, again, perhaps a, a greater public understanding both of the history of, of architecture in this country and its shaping of the modern nation, but also the shaping of how we live and, and our futures. Well, I would hope that we have shed light on some of the lesser aspects of the built environment, as in when I say lesser, lesser known aspects, particularly um, the vernacular, which is a very big part of the volume, not just the rural vernacular, but uh, the urban vernacular, as Ellen has written about it. From my point of view, obviously, as well, the industrial heritage. You know, I've heard people talk about those aspects of, of Irish architecture as queer buildings. Um, I hope that people will will find within the histories of those buildings and the stories of how those things were put together um, a little bit like how I experienced architecture um, when I was younger that that they will be excited by it. I think once you have that idea in your head and you go on with it, the sort of shaping if you like of, of people's futures will just come naturally and new scholars might get some ideas from this about where they might go with their research um, using the, the contents of the book. Ellen, what would you hope people will take away from from this Um, one? I suppose we all had a notional reader in our head. Um, For me, the reader was somebody who had to, um, well, maybe not informed, but very interested and maybe involved with the profession. Um, So um, I would say that uh, just to... For instance, I suppose it's it's a way in what what Livia is saying. It's a it's 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 backing up on that. But coming to something pretty ignorant, like recently, I was looking at. I wanted to know more about housing in the 18th century. But but for 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 the middle classes, and and I was able to find an awful lot on cabins by Nessa Roach, and and also how estates were designed. And actually, Livia and Kevin Whelan have written this superb essay, which which you know I. 
I, I, I would have read it a few years ago, but I, I kind of pushed aside because getting on with my own stuff for, for the book on planning um, seventeen uh, planning towns and villages from the 17th to the 19th centuries. And in there you find about, well, you find out about where Tremor comes from, where Milton Malby and all these places of our lives that we've driven through in the back of a car or, or whatever and really not not known where to situate them. So yes, it's that business of having created a horizon in which we can situate objects, maybe creating a taxonomy where things are can be placed somehow. Hugh? Um, well, for the sake of not repeating what's already been said, I suppose I might think about it slightly differently and think that I'm also interested in how this book communicates beyond Ireland and how it... Because, of course, architecture is an incredibly international um discipline and phenomenon you know styles are borrowed people's careers switch between countries etc etc so there's no such thing as an architecture that happens in isolation so that's one aspect of it is that hopefully this will start to open up conversations with colleagues in other countries who are looking at similar building types and and looking at similarities and differences and also i know already from conversations with colleagues in oslo in in, in holland that that there's a real interest in whether a comparable project might be done in other countries. It hasn't really been done that much. So, you know, the the exercise in and of itself is also of interest to historians working in, in very different contexts. I was speaking there to Hugh Campbell, Livia Hurley and Ellen Rowley. My thanks to them as well as to the other contributors to this edition of the programme, Barry O'Reilly, Graham Hickey and Patricia McCarthy. Architecture of Ireland 1600 to 2000 is edited by Rolf Lober, Hugh Campbell, Livia Hurley, John Montague and Ellen Rowley and published by Yale University Press for the Royal Irish Academy and the Paul Mellon Centre. On next week's Arts Tonight, Canadian visual artist Stan Douglas, whose first show in Ireland is currently running at the Irish Museum of Modern Art and also the exhibition's curator, Seamus Keeley. Join us then. Goodbye. Arts Tonight is presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleon and the Onloon.